Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a prime ministerial library and museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. 70 years ago, on the 1st of September 1951, the Menzies government, on behalf of Australia, along with the United States and New Zealand, signed the ANZUS Alliance, which has been the key security treaty that has underpinned Australia's strategic and defence policy since that time. In a special three-part series for the Afternoon Light podcast, I will be speaking to three eminent Australians about the legacy of ANZUS, starting with Dr Brendan Nelson, a former Australian Minister for Defence, Stephen Loosely, a former Chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the Australian Parliament, and finally Professor Tim Lynch of the University of Melbourne, an expert in Australian foreign policy. Well, today I'm speaking to Dr Brendan Nelson about the historic ANZUS Treaty between Australia and the United States and New Zealand. And Dr Brendan Nelson is currently President of Boeing Australia, but he is most, I think, fondly remembered for being Director of the Australian War Memorial in Canberra for seven years. And prior to that, he was Australia's ambassador to Belgium, Luxembourg, the European Union and NATO. And, of course, he was the member for Bradfield from 1996 to 2009. And he served as Minister for Education and Minister for Defence when troops were deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan and East Timor and the Solomon Islands. Brendan, it's absolutely delightful to have you on our podcast, Afternoon Light. Thank you so much for joining us. And I must say there isn't, a, uh, I think, a, a, a better person to speak to about the 70th anniversary of ANZUS than you. Well, thank you very much, Georgina. There are many people who would be better to speak to about it, but I feel privileged to do so. And, uh, and I'm very pleased to see you leading the Minters Institute. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I thought I would start off our discussion by asking you to paint the picture of the geopolitical context that existed in 1951 when Australia, the United States and New Zealand met in San Francisco on the 1st of September to, to sign the ANZUS agreement. It was a, obviously post-World War II and, I mean, the two great themes of that era were the rise of communism as a threat to the Western world, to liberal democracies, but also, of course, the decolonisation after the, the beginning of the fall of the British Empire and, the, and, and other European empires as well. So it was a, a very, very interesting time that Australia was undertaking its real start to its foreign policy away from the United Kingdom. Well, the history is extremely important. In fact, when you look at the world and you're trying to make sense of the world and the things that are going on, a sense of history reminds us that there are extremely important and difficult decisions that have to be made. 
and the importance of making them. And history is the guiding discipline in so many ways. So the context of this is that Australia came into the Second World War desperately unprepared for it. It had, like the rest of the world, the experience of having had an isolationist uh, United States. And then, of course, Australia immediately committed when Robert Menzies was Prime Minister in 39 to the Second World War. But then with the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbour, simultaneously landing on the Malay Peninsula in 1941, we shouldn't ever forget that in February 1942, our then Prime Minister, John Curtin, uh, said to Australians that the fall of Singapore, Fortress Singapore, as it had been known, protected as it was then by the British, that the fall of Singapore was Australia's Dunkirk and that the defence of Australia was no longer that of the contribution to a world at war, but rather the defence of Australia against an enemy that was threatening to invade. And Curtin went on to say that the entire English-speaking world was at risk, including the Americas. So we emerged from the Second World War victorious, inconsolably mourning 40,000 dead, but not a day going by where we weren't reflecting on the American sacrifice and Pacific from 41 to the end of the war, 300,000 American casualties, 103,000 American dead. The Second World War had many consequences for Australia, but to me, the three most important were, we knew that we could no longer rely on Britain again for our security. We would instead look across the Pacific to the United States of America. The second was that the war created the conditions for Australia to engage uh, on equal terms with an emergent Asia, which we would do so, as you know, particularly with Japan on a trade sense, believe it or not, in the 1950s, and then subsequently much more. And the third, of course, that the war laid the foundations for that generational struggle between democracy and communism, which shaped our view of ourselves and place in the world for at least uh, two generations. So Robert Menzies comes to office in 1949 and the United States had already rejected a Pacific Pact, a NATO-style agreement, which had been proposed by Curtin. And the USSR was acquiring nuclear weapons. We had the Chinese Civil War had been won by the Communist Party. The decolonisation of our region was leading to politically and religiously motivated insurgencies and Russia and China were nurturing revolution to varying degrees. And then, of course, uh, President Truman made that uh, critically important decision to deploy American troops to the defence of uh, South Korea. So Robert Menzies in office appoints uh, Percy Spender as his Minister for External Affairs, the Foreign Minister. And one of Menzies' great strengths, of course, was he appointed people who were seriously talented, people that were ambitious. He wasn't frightened of their ambition. In fact, he encouraged it. And here's his Spender, who, unlike Menzies, actually had, was looking very carefully at the US. Spender, perhaps before others in the government, recognised that the future for Australia lie across the Pacific with the US. And he was seeking to build relationship with the US with the great power and also with countries in our region which were not communist and, in fact, could spend to play a very important role in the development of the Colombo Plan. So that was the broad environment in which the ANZUS alliance was negotiated and the treaty signed 
as you said, in September 1951 in San Francisco. It's, it's interesting to reflect on, on the story, at least around Australia's involvement in the Korean War. It's commonly said that, that Menzies was quite opposed to sending troops to Korea without um, the British also doing so. He's, he hadn't traditionally been very close to America. He was slightly suspicious of their politics. And you, when you read his memoirs, he, he certainly sees quite a sort of divergence in culture, while the values and the foundations of, our, of governments and, of course, our Australian constitution is based on the US constitution, they were very, very close. The, the sort of culture was very different. He was very much a, more an Anglophile than a, than a, a big fan of US culture, but uh, it, it said that en route to the UK, and of course in those days it was you know, way, 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 way before mobile phones, satellite phones, and of course commercial airlines were not freely available. So in those days you, you went by ship to the UK from Australia, a long voyage. And so Menzies, as Prime Minister, was incommunicado. Percy Spender, as you said, got, got wind that the UK was about to announce that it would commit troops to Korea to support the US efforts there to defend South Korea from the, the communists coming in from the north. And uh, Spender, unable to get in touch with Menzies, has to make a captain's call or, or a deputy captain's call in that, in that respect and, and committed Australian troops to, to Korea before the UK made their announcement because the concern was that if Australia made it after the UK, then it would be seen as Australia doing the bidding of the UK rather than having its own independent policy making and decision making. And uh, apparently Menzies was told when he when he came in at a port and was, was able to be contacted and didn't take it well, but of course in public pretended like it was part of all part of his grand plan. <laughs> He was uh, obviously a consummate politician and, um, and wasn't going to make a, a, a political incident out of it. But, of course, that decision then gave Australia an incredible um, opportunity to lean on, on the United States when it came to, to securing their agreement for the, for the ANZUS Pact. And particularly as the United States wanted a, a soft peace treaty with, with Japan, the rest is history. But it's interesting those... Those uh, th those moments in history where things don't always go to plan, but it turns out turns out okay in the end. But <laughs> if we'd had mobile phones back then, I wonder I wonder if it had turned out any differently. <laughs> well, the right thing was done, and uh, uh, Spender, of course, uh, as you quite rightly say, was aware that the British were going to commit to the Korean War. He committed Australia to uh, Korea, and. Uh, when he did so, he's reported as saying to some of his colleagues that the United States would repay Australia a hundredfold for over for the commitment that it had made. And what you've just nicely unpacked in the Korean story is that is how we got to the alliance. So we, we've just spoken about the, the broader geopolitical context in which it was negotiated and then signed, but it was also a long-term objective, indeed a personal mission of Spender himself to have a, a defence treaty, an alliance, if you like, with the United States, it was also a product of very clever, hard-working diplomats in the young foreign service that we then had. 
also a degree of courage, I think it's fair to say, on Spender's part, a sense of opportunism with some of the decisions that were made uh, by Australia at the time, and a very effective reading of domestic politics, uh, domestic politics both in the United States and in Australia. So, uh, so when Menzies uh, discovers, you know, from the ship that this, is, uh, this has happened, uh, as, uh, as I've certainly experienced in government myself, at times decisions are made and people would think that you would have been a part of it, fully understand it, and, of course, you, you to the public, of course, you make them uh, feel that, you, of course, you were a part of it, fully support it and uh, go with it. And so Menzies obviously did it. And you're right, but Menzies, of course, famously said he was British to his boot, bootstraps. But with the passage of time and certainly in reflecting on his uh, 16 years in government, uh, that second period as Prime Minister leading the Liberal Party, he regarded the, the alliance uh, indeed as being one of his most significant achievements, quite rightly. Yes, it said that, I think Spender in his memoirs said that Menzies thought that ANZUS was initially built on a, a foundation of jelly. I love that imagery. <laughs> Um, you know, all this sort of military hardware and then all that's below it is just jelly wobbling about. <laughs> and, but obviously in the, in the course of his, of his time in government uh, changed his mind on that. But I want to unpack what you were saying earlier about Menzies choosing really brilliant ministers. I mean, I don't think they were all brilliant, but certainly he had absolute stars like Spender and then there was... Or it's Richard Casey who took over from Spender. In fact, Spender wasn't even external affairs minister when the ANZUS was signed, was he? He he only had 15 months or so in, in the job and then decided to retire at the election. And Richard Casey was appointed in his place and he went off to be Australia's ambassador to the United States and, of course, was, was there when, when the ANZUS was signed on the 1st of September. But it's, uh, it says something about Menzies' self-belief in his own leadership and strength of leadership and, and, of course, his good judgment of other people that he would choose someone like Spender and allow, uh, who, who really was, could have been a prime minister himself if, if not for, for Menzies being there for such a long time, but, uh, but to allow Spender so many creative and important policies to have that control over that policy agenda that that really dictated how Australia engaged with the world an alliance with the United States a shift away from the United Kingdom as its former great and powerful friend and, and supplier of, of security and then of course that shift to Asia too through the Colombo plan program that 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 spender was the um, was the father of yeah, and uh, I think for, for those listening to and certainly students of uh, leadership and Menzies in particular, one of the many lessons of good leaders is that they encourage people and surround themselves with people who are perhaps uh, brighter than them, more capable of them, to not see ambition as a threat. I'm not suggesting that Menzies was any less capable than any of his ministers. I mean, Menzies, we well, well know, founded uh, the Liberal Party. Uh, he uh, was in his second uh, tenure as Prime Minister, an urbane, highly intelligent uh, uh, lawyer, uh, and uh, he was uh, comfortable with himself and in his own skin. And, and so I think for people that are, because uh, leadership, in my opinion, can't be taught, but it can be learned, but people that are, are looking to 
learn the attributes of leadership, I think it's one of the things that they, they would be well uh, advised to, uh, to model themselves on. It's interesting too, Menzies, um, as you mentioned earlier, he was Prime Minister in 39 to 41 and, uh, and, and really that was seen, while he, we, he was instrumental in preparing Australia for war, obviously Australia entered the Second World War during the time of his first Prime Ministership, that, that first, first term really was seen as a bit of a failure for him. He lost the confidence of his colleagues, particularly those in the country party his party, the United Australia Party, was pretty much crumbling as, a, as an institution. And, um, and he, he resigned and, and really spent years after that in the wilderness rebuilding himself and, of course, reflecting on his, his leadership and, and how he was to rebuild the non-Labor side of politics into a political force, which, of course, became the Liberal Party, and he did that incredibly successfully, but rebuilt his own leadership style Yes, indeed, and uh, and you can certainly argue that uh, John Howard uh, subsequently uh, followed uh, in that uh, model, uh, having learned a great deal from disappointments, setbacks, and uh, and failure, political failure, and Menzies did uh, just that. So he was at ease with with himself, and he was certainly comfortable having extraordinarily capable and ambitious people around him, uh, like like Spender. So, and the other lesson which you made uh, in a throwaway remark is that uh, Spender had only a very short period as external affairs or foreign minister, but he achieved more in that time than most who filled that post uh, uh, since uh, since it was established. Uh, so uh, it, there's a lesson there. It's not how long you're there. It's uh, what you can achieve whilst you're doing it. Oh, I know, absolutely. Well, I was I was just reading the diaries of his successor, R.G. Casey, Richard Casey, and, of course, the, the building in which the now Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade inhabits in Canberra is the, is the R.G. Casey building. And uh, I, I think there is a spender room. I'm pretty sure there is a spender room in the R.G. Casey building. But, you know, for, for longevity, I think he's the second longest-serving foreign minister, the first... First, of course, is someone I'm very familiar with, being my father. But, uh, but you know, you look at, at Casey's legacy and Spender's and, you know, for, for, um, for bang for your time, Spender does incredibly well. He's quite an extraordinary giant of Australian foreign and strategic policy. I wanted to just, given you were ambassador, Australia's ambassador to NATO, just just ask you about ANZUS versus NATO because there are the ANZUS was the text. It's quite a short agreement. It's no, you know, goodness, can you imagine if it was drafted these days? It'd be three hundred pages long and so many caveats. The lawyers would drive the ministers crazy in drafting it. But but it was actually quite an efficient agreement. But the Australian side really was trying to get a lot more commitments out of the out of the US than, than it ended up getting. There's not actually a, a clear commitment to collective defence, but, but, a, but a commitment to maintaining the peace in the Pacific. Um, your experience with NATO, do you, do you see differences in the way that the US engages with NATO versus Australia? Does that make a difference? Or is the fact that there's a piece of paper that, that provides for an alliance whether it's a hard commitment to collective security or, or, a, or a more loose 
looser commitment to providing for peace in the in the Pacific area in a region, um, does it does it matter that much? Well, they are quite different. And as I said earlier, Georgina, uh, the United States had already rejected a Pacific pact, as it was then described, a NATO-style arrangement. So at NATO, of course, we know the, of which we know the history, the Washington Declaration of 1949, the, the Cold War, Russia, the collective defence of those European countries, and now, of course, NATO, I think, comprising 29 countries, a lot of the former USSR uh, countries that have, uh, some of which have become uh, NATO members. So NATO has a huge bureaucracy. It has uh, very, very black letter law uh, treaties with which the members uh, comply and must comply. And uh, a huge uh, number of uh, people. So you've got ambassadors, permanent representatives to NATO. You've got the defence representation at NATO, you've got all of the, the officials which uh, are beneath, that, beneath NATO. It has three major centres, the largest of which uh, is the political headquarters in Brussels, and then it's got uh, shape uh, in another part of Belgium, and then it's in the Netherlands. So it is a huge, a huge thing. I mean, it's not the UN, but it's, it's getting up there. The beauty of our alliance with the US and the treaty is that it is 800 words, 11 articles. Uh, the opening sentence is to strengthen the fabric of peace in the Asia-Pacific. And when you read the articles and you look at the uh, obligations to which the United States and Australia have committed, they're very well written, but they are not uh, black-letter law requirements on one party or the other to do something in certain circumstances. And Menzies himself said, uh, said of uh, the alliance uh, when it was done in 51, he said, uh, Australia and America have a contract. It is a contract based on utmost uh, goodwill, the utmost good faith and unqualified friendship. And each of us will stand by it. And they had a handshake, essentially. And that's the beauty of it. It's simplicity. It's at the leader's level. There's no secretariat, no bureaucracy. It's at the Prime Minister, President, Defence Secretary, Defence Minister, Foreign Secretary, State, Foreign Minister, State Department. It, that's how it works. And then similarly at the military senior level. And it's, as you well know, it was activated uh, by John Howard the first time and only time uh, after the September 11 attacks in 2001, Articles 4 and 5. Uh, but importantly, in Article 4, if one of the parties is attacked, as so described in the articles, then the other party would then defend and support the, the other, other country, if you like, within the terms of its own constitutional arrangements. So that's the beauty of it. And, so, and it, it's vastly different uh, from NATO, and that, that's a good thing. Yes, I'm sure that considering it as a leader-to-leader-level agreement gives it so much more flexibility but also so much more power to that because in times of, of crisis, like we saw over 9-11, the leaders come together and, and nut out what, what each side will do rather than this sort of creaking bureaucracy making recommendations up the line, up the line, up the line, and I mean, you've been a minister. <laughs> you, know, you know how frustrating that can be. Yeah, and, and when you look at NATO, 
most of the European countries uh, for centuries, even before the, the Treaty of Westphalia, were invading one another, at war with one another. They have different languages, different cultures, different histories. And the, and the alliance uh, brought them together, of course, following the Second World War. And as I said, uh, the threats from uh, the Cold War in the USSR. But for Australia and America, we are allies. We have common values. We have a common belief in political, economic and religious freedoms, the coexistence of faith and reason, free academic inquiry. We believe in a free press, an independent judiciary. We share the same language. We, we have similar institutions, uh, although we are in many ways culturally different. And, and, and that, that's the foundation of it. And it's interesting that in my experience of life, the more paragraphs, the more articles you need in a contract, the more pages in it, the less willing each of the participants is to actually abide by it. It's often the most binding contracts are ones that are, are, are on a veritable handshake of a sort. And, and that's, that's what binds our two countries. Oh, look, there's so much to unpack in what you just said. I would like to go back to the 1960s. So Menzies is, of course, Prime Minister. It's 1963. And uh, the President of the United States is JFK. And Australia is involved in its near, with its near neighbours. There is the Confrontasi. So Indonesia is trying to take over parts of Malaysia. Malaysia, a former colony of the United Kingdom, the British Empire, Australia is coming to its aid, but Australia starts to become worried about the, the threat of, of Indonesia. President Sukarno is in power. There's obviously a very, very tricky relationship between Australia and, and Sukarno. At the time, uh, JFK is, is basically said to have um, said to, to Menzies, don't think that ANZUS is going to apply if you're worried about the Indonesians coming and attacking, attacking you. We don't want, we don't want a part of of that war, the United States, certainly their, their business community saw great potential in, in Indonesia and, and didn't want to harm, it, harm their commercial interests there. So this is where ANZUS perhaps, I mean, Australia never had to invoke it, didn't even get that near, and in fact the sort of fear of, of threats from Indonesia, which you know, as a former defence minister, you know over the years of various defence white papers and all their iterations, that is um, not, of course, in contemporary times, but, but in the past has been part of the, the overall strategy in protecting the, the territory of Australia. But do, does Australia have this fear of abandonment that, that people like Alan Gingell, a former head of the Office of National Assessment, has written about, written a book called Fear of Abandonment, do we, do we have that fear of abandonment by the United States? Is that, is that legitimate? Did it, did it start in 1963? I mean, it's, it's sort of an inauspicious start to ANZUS at, at that stage, only 12 years old. Well, look, uh, when uh, Percy Spender was driving the relationship with the United States, the great power of the Pacific and leading to the ANZUS Treaty and the Alliance, Australia was geostrategically very anxious, very, very nervous, and very, having very good reasons to be so. And so then through the 1950s, uh, from 54 through to the early 60s, Australia under the Menzies government was more focused on CETO, the Southeast Asian Treaty Organisation, 
the so-called Manila, Manila Pact, uh, Thailand, uh, the Philippines, United States, UK, France, Australia, New Zealand, and so on. And uh, the alliance was there, it was important, and Australia, understandably, was as the small power, if I could use that expression, compared to the United States, was, was worried about uh, abandonment uh, and perhaps had more reason to be so at that time uh, than it, it, I don't believe Australia has that fear now. I disagree with that, Alan on that, that, that idea that we would have US abandonment. But in the 1950s, in the 1960s, if you have the imaginative capacity to see the world through the eyes of those who led our country at that time, yeah, that would be pretty good reason to, to be concerned about it. Uh, in the midst of the Cold War, the US facing some existential challenges. Uh, so, so when um, the Indonesians were basically under Sukarno were seeking to frustrate with guerrilla attacks into Malaysia, frustrate the formation of the state of Malaysia, Australia, of course, deployed troops there, and uh, as did the British and understandably wanted the United States to support Australia, if not uh, militarily, certainly, if things got pretty bad. The US didn't do that. And, uh, and it's easy for us in hindsight, which is a great thing. You know, my kids have got it. It's fantastic. But in hindsight, the US made the right decision under JFK and then Lyndon Bain Johnson. But what it did do was apply immense US statecraft to assisting uh, Australia because the US was concerned about its own relationship with Indonesia. It was concerned about its own bilateral relationships uh, in uh, Southeast Asia. So the US didn't want to tarnish or in any way undermine, let alone destroy those emerging bilateral relationships following the Second World War in the midst of Cold War by suddenly saying, yes, we've got an alliance with Australia and we're in there uh, to, in the Confrontasi. So Johnson, as you're well aware, Senator Robert uh, Kennedy to Tokyo and uh, he had a meeting with the Indonesians at the Imperial Hotel and uh, basically uh, forced, uh, well, persuaded, shall I say, the Indonesians back to the negotiating table. But one of the things, Georgian, was that because Australia had a treaty alliance, a security alliance, if you like, with the United States, the Indonesians knew that was in the back pocket. So whilst the US was using diplomacy and statecraft in and all of the force it could apply to it and not deploying militarily, the Indonesians knew that Australia and the US had an alliance and so that, that was a part of the leverage that was used not only in that but in other circumstances. I wonder too, Brendan, just reflecting back on your comments earlier about the shared values between the United States and Australia, and, the, and they are very important. But, but also your comments about the US interests, you know, there's often a debate between values and interests and do they, do they converge, do they diverge? And Menzies was very much a realist when it came to um, international relations. And, uh, and, and, you know, I think as the Labor opposition leader for some time, while he was Prime Minister, Doc Evatt was very much a liberal internationalist. He believed in the United Nations and the power of, of you know, global government as um, a force for good, um, which was a, an idealistic approach that, that Menzies didn't have a huge amount of time for. But in 1951, when the ANZUS was signed, there wasn't a huge amount of, of dialogue around 
the shared value. Whereas in 2021 and in and recent years, when US and Australian leaders come together, when the ministers come together for Ausmin, for the meeting which you would have attended between the foreign and defence ministers of the two countries, there are always significant statements about shared values, about, about fighting together for 100 years for freedom and for all the, all the things that support the upholding of freedom throughout the world. How much do values really matter to the alliance or, or is it about interests and preserving US power, which, which for, from Australia's perspective, has been an incredible force for good, for peace and for prosperity in, in our region? Well, it, it's about both. And I can understand in 1951 not having a preeminent focus on values. Sometimes the things that are most obvious to us and most important to us, we have a tendency to take for granted and we, we don't actually speak about it. You've got to keep in mind, we've just come out of the Second World War. We were into a war in Korea, and we had, uh, as I said earlier, 103,000 American dead, uh, half their bodies never found uh, in the war in the Pacific. And uh, the United States' role in protecting and defending Australia, and we, we darn well defended ourselves as well, I might add, but, uh, but the role the US played in bringing peace and security and subsequently prosperity with its presence in the Western Pacific was something that we, we, we didn't actually speak about. We were focused much more on those issues that, had, that I spoke about earlier, which were the backdrop to the negotiation and signing of the treaty. And Australia... Uh, as you said, uh, unlike Doc Evert, Menzies was not quite that uh, internationalist in terms of those uh, international multilateral fora. Uh, Menzies and Spender in particular were focused on power. Who had power? We wanted to make sure that we were aligned with the, the right people who had that power because, again, it was, it was Cold War. You've got USSR, you've got the United States, and then you've got a variety of countries with the varying influence falling on one side or, side or the other. That was the focus. So as time has gone by, I think we have, both us and the United States, have fully appreciated that it's actually, and this is one of the reasons why the document's so brief, it's actually the values that underpin the whole thing. Uh, as uh, Menzies had said, utmost good faith, utmost goodwill, unqualified friendship. And it's interesting uh, in the uh, chapter, the paper which I wrote for the AMCHAM ASPE commissioned uh, paper we released uh, recently, uh, as I said, uh, when I had Senator John McCain at the Australian War Memorial in May 2017, and uh, I stood on the parapet of the memorial with him, pointing down Anzac Parade across the lake to the parliament, and I said, there we exercise our political, economic and religious freedoms that are exercised on our behalf. But here at the memorial, we reveal our character, our soul. We reveal here the truths, the values by which we live. And our values, I said to him, are our interests. And he said to me, and our interests are our values. And so ultimately, that is, is what it's about. And I think that's, uh, I think it's a very good thing that US and Australian leaders in speaking of the alliance speak first and foremost about values because in a, in a world where humankind is going through a major transformation that we've not experienced, I think, since the 15th century, 
what we have to be most clear about is who we are, in what it is which we believe, truths by which we live, that we think are worth fighting to defend uh, politically, diplomatically, and, and perhaps at times militarily. I, I must say I was um, really moved by your retelling of that story, Senator John McCain, who, of course, ran in 2000, I'm going to be tested now, 2008 against uh, President Obama, who became president, um, who ran for president as the Republicans' nominee. Uh, he was a great friend of Australia and, of course, of the Alliance, and uh, I was sorry to see his passing um, over the last two years. And, and, you know, those types of advocates for the Alliance are so important both in, in Congress and, and, of course, in the Australian Parliament. It's not just about the leaders. It's also about the, the supporters of the Alliance throughout the, throughout the community. I guess looking forward, you know, I'm really interested in your perspective as a, as a former Minister of Defence and, of course, as, as Director of the War Memorial too, where you, you, you know, oversaw an incredible period of, um, I think, a real deep investment in, in, our, in our history and storytelling there. And I think the appreciation amongst the Australian public of the contribution, the sacrifice of our of our service men and women is uh, is no greater than it you know in my lifetime definitely than it has been thanks to to your effort efforts at the war memorial. How do you see the future of the alliance? And I think I think particularly with the the events of the last few days and, and week, as we see the US withdrawing from Afghanistan and the fallout there, that you know so many tragic images and and so many opinion pieces for, for and against and, and something in between. But, but it, 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 you know, Afghanistan was the only time when, uh, well, at least post 9-11 was the only time when ANZUS was invoked. 20 years on, we've left Afghanistan and, and it seems like it's uh, Taliban reducts there, unfortunately. Many people saying little progress in the end, would be made despite the trillions of dollars of investment, the loss of tragic loss of lives, both of the Afghans and, uh, and of course, our servicemen and women and those of the international forces there. What, what is the future for the Alliance when looking at those types of setbacks and, and then, you know, divergence in values and interests as time goes on? Well, I... Uh... Firstly, if you look at it historically, uh, the Brookings Institute in 2010 studied 63 major alliances and only 10 have endured more than 40 years, NATO being one, uh, the ANZUS Alliance being another, the US-Japan uh, Cooperation Treaty uh, being another. So a very small number with longevity. longevity. And what... What ends alliances is when one of the parties is defeated in a major conflict or disappears completely. Uh, also, if there is a divergence of uh, interests. So New Zealand, for example, went anti-nuclear in the mid-80s and so is not effectively now a part of the alliance as we would regard Australia and the United States. The, th the third is when... Uh, one of the parties to the alliance actually breaks uh, the agreement. And the fourth is if the threat that gave birth to the alliance actually disappears. So Stephen Walt in 1997 uh, also studied uh, alliances. 
practices. And he said, look, there are three things that are essential for long longevity. Hegemonic leadership, which clearly US has. Second is str shared strategic identity and values. And the third is resolve. Australia and the United States have those, all of those things in common. I am very confident uh, in the alliance and its future. As it has been and is now being tested by the circumstances of the US withdrawal from Afghanistan, there will be moments in the alliance. We discussed Confrontazi in uh, 1965 and there in East Timor with Bill Clinton, the Clinton administration in 1999, for example. There are moments when it's tested and but that in itself does, should not give rise to people saying, well, the United States is in decline or the US is not committed to uh, the Australia alliance and so on. Uh, you've travelled extensively. I certainly have. And I, I find look, one of the most reassuring things for me for, is that whenever I go to the United States and when it becomes clear I'm an Australian, universally, like universally, Americans are enthusiastic about our country, its place in the world, and its relationship with the United States. That doesn't mean the average American, like the average Australian, understands the alliance the way you and I do and the audience that's listening to this. But that, that is the foundation of it. I, I re well recall in uh, January 2014, I'm standing, uh, director of the Australian War Memorial, I hand my official passport over to the customs officer at the uh, airport in uh, Dallas. And uh, he looks at me, he looks at the passport, looks at me again, he says, the Australian War Memorial, in a thick uh, Texan accent. I said, yes. He said, we need one of them here. And I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. He said, my son's a Marine. He came back from Afghanistan last year. He was telling me about the Aussies. And I said to him, every time America picks a fight, the Australians are the first in with us and the last out. And there's a, more than a grain of uh, truth in that. So the future of the alliance, Georgina, in my opinion, is, is the bedrock is those values, much more than the 800 words in the 11 articles. But it's, it's going to be shaped by the, the state of the US-China relationship, the integrity and stability of the so-called rules-based order, which has been severely tested in recent years. Terrorism, of course, which has not got away, gone away and is likely to be escalated uh, following the events of the collapse in Afghanistan. Uh, fragile uh, states, which are... Uh, subject to being uh, radicalised, if you like. Uh, also, the pace of military modernisation, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. And then these uh, unexpected emerging new non-geographic threats, which are, are going to challenge all of us. I mean, climate change being one of them. So they and other things, I, I think, are going to shape the alliance. But the alliance, the defence and intelligence uh, cooperation is one of four pillars of the alliance. The other three are political, economic and diplomatic. And, uh, and we should never forget that. Well, I'm glad that you, you offer hope for the alliance. And I, 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 mean, I think most Australians would still see the US as an incredible force for good in our region and in the world in terms of upholding peace and stability.
And uh, of course, the the next the next decade and beyond is not going to be without its significant challenges, particularly when it comes to to climate change and the rise of China, and you know even just dealing with the fallout of of pandemics like COVID nineteen. We're going to see um, a, a real bifurcation between those who've been vaccinated and those who've not been, and and mm-hmm. how that how the geopolitics of that unfolds. But we we do have a, a friend in the United States, a friend that uh, that was that was signed up to by um, Sir Robert Menzies' government in uh, 1951, a, a huge anniversary to commemorate on the 1st of September. And uh, I really thank you for your time today, Brendan. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Afternoon Light. Thank you, Georgine. It's been a great pleasure and uh, I wish you and the Institute every success. Anything I can do to help, I always will. Thank you. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about our podcast and, of course, the Institute at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter at rmenziesinst and on LinkedIn. Thank you very much for joining us this week and we hope you can join us next week for another fantastic discussion on the life and legacy of Sir Robert Menzies.